0: Yes, you are tuned in to the Rage Podcast with me, your host, H. Soul Man. In case you missed the first part of this series, our interview with the indomitable Syrah Rao, then... Please go back and listen to it. But for those of you that caught that pure fire, we're going to drop part two today on the Rage Podcast. It's going down. And just so that we're getting everyone up to speed, this is the second interview by Cyra Rao in a three part series called Caucasity, where we are looking at the complicity and fragility of white women and its impact on our social movements and society overall that's the theme so the theme itself is already pure fire and then we have a lineup of guests that just do a phenomenal job at breaking down both their journeys into understanding and wrapping their heads around caucasity and realizations and analysis that they've arrived at from going through that journey. So I'm not going to speak too much because this is part two. I want to hop right in to our guest Cyber Rao continuing to break down her journey and her analysis of caucasity. You're tuned into the Rage Podcast. Let's get this work.
1: to
2: go back. I'm I'm speaking with Ira Rao right now, who uh, ran for Congress here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, We're speaking about white women's fragility uh, specifically. You explaining your awakening also explains the level of vitriol that I have seen leveled against you, and now hearing your narrative it sounds like these white people felt betrayed betrayed
1: because, exactly you know,
2: is is that what you would attribute it to yeah. it's like a, because you were so uh so much on the inside you had adopted that that world view and if I, if i'm hearing your your narrative correctly that was kind of shaken or broken or the spell so sort of so to speak, was broken by the passing transition of your mother that led to these conversations where there was a lack of empathy involved. Is, is that correct?
1: That's exactly. You just hit the nail on the head. So the way I'm viewed by white people and, frankly, Indian people, too, um, is I'm a race trader. So from Indian, Indian people are like, I've, I've seriously had Indian people tell me that, like, just stop to knock it off, and I'll look at them and be like, they know you're not white. Like, I'm not sure what you think I'm giving away, but I'm not sure why you don't realize that they know you're not white, because I just heard them calling you Apu or Paki or terrorist. Like, mm-hmm. they know, number one. And with white people, it's even more sinister. It's, they let me through. So, so part of white supremacy depends on letting certain Black and brown people through the matrix, um, and letting us achieve, um, you know, professional success, and letting us into the fancy schools, and, and letting us onto Wall Street, and letting us into Congress, and letting us into state legislatures. And, um, and then we're supposed to be grateful for that, right? Because we got picked to be let through. I got picked to be let through because I worked my ass off to be the wettest person possible on the planet. And so I got picked. So they let me through, and um, they can't believe that I've turned, and I'm also not grateful. We are supposed to kiss their asses up and down, you know, if they let us through. So I'm a race trader, and I'm ungrateful. And I can't even tell you how many white people who gave money to my campaign last year who have called me, texted me, and been like, you know, I can't believe you're talking about white people the way you're talking about white people. I gave you money as if they own me because they um, donated it to my campaign. And I want to be like, I'm also confused because I was, I've been talking about white people a lot longer than, you know, last year. Like I was doing it all the year before. I'm not sure why you didn't just do your research if that was offensive to you. So, um, you know, when I ran for Congress, I was told by every political consultant to stop talking about white people, to talk about class. And to not mm-hmm. talk about race. Um, I mean, this is all very calculated stuff. So we know that the elephant in the room is racism and whiteness and toxic whiteness and white supremacy because it's truly the only thing you can't talk about. And just look around. I mean, look at our most, quote, progressive candidates, even the black and brown ones, they don't talk about this.
2: Can you talk a little bit about what is your analysis and? And and ultimately, your, the conclusion you draw about being in allyship with white people in general, white women in particular.
1: Sure. Um, okay, so when you're dealing with um, systems of oppression, there are people who create those systems and benefit from those systems. So white people created white supremacy, and they benefit from white supremacy. Men created misogyny, and they benefit from misogyny. So the people who create and benefit from the systems – by definition, have to be the ones to dismantle those systems. We can't do it. We've tried. Women have tried to dismantle misogyny for a long time, and, um, you know, brown and black people have tried to dismantle white supremacy, and, and it doesn't work that way. So I, I thought, I sincerely thought for two years that white people, specifically white women, could actually choose gender over whiteness. And if they were to ever do that, we would actually overthrow the patriarchy because we'd have the numbers. Um, Instead, they always choose whiteness. So where am I with allyship? I don't believe in it. I mean, uh, by and large, with very, very important exceptions. Um, I'm starting a nonprofit that I'm not going to go into the details of it right now, but um, there's a white woman who has been extremely supportive in in every single possible way, and it's been very difficult for her considering some of the stuff that I've written about and said, but she stuck with it and she stuck with me. And, and I would say she's a real ally. I mean, there are people like that. She is the, she is the exception to the rule though. The rule is no, I don't believe in it because, um, you know, I do these dinners with white ladies around the country called race to dinner with Regina Jackson, a black woman here in Denver. Yeah. And we talk about it as there's a breaking point And even the wokest um, of white women will show you who they are um it they they can't take it i mean they just really they'll they'll go along they'll go along and, the, and at some point something tips them over the edge where they just can't and um i will be honest with you i think those women are more dangerous than the kkk because they're sneaky and um they lead you to believe one thing but in the end they'll like stab you in your sleep
2: my last uh question to you is that uh I know that you're in the process of writing a book, uh, Uh and you you, you announced it. I I have no doubt that it's probably in the same vein of what it is that we're talking about. What prompted you to to write the book? And uh, if you can give our listeners just a a, a peek into what we can expect from this, your first book, I believe.
1: Sure. Um, It's called uh, Broken News, and it's going to be a book about racism in the news media. And, um, you know, oftentimes people... White people, not oftentimes. They all think the media is somehow objective, and there's a liberal news media and a conservative news media. Somehow, Fox News Democrats think Fox News is bad, CNN is good. Um, Republicans, you know, think Fox News is good, CNN is bad. My, um, none of this is going to be shocking for you. All institutional media is racist. All institutional media is sexist, and you can't, you can't, um, you know, you can't erase. Uh, institutions by labeling yourself a Democrat or Republican. You know, you're still, you're still a white person in this country. And so, um, my whole point is it's not just that the news media is complicit in white supremacy, the news media is an active, um, fighter for white supremacy, including the New York Times, including NPR, including the New Yorker. Um, so that's what it's going to be about is is exhibiting how that actually plays out and what it's like to be mostly like being on the receiving end of that. So being a person of color, um, how is that how does that show up? We're erased number one, right? So um, we don't exist, so we are barely covered, and specifically our trauma is never covered. so we're erased, and when we are covered, we're stereotyped. and so when you erase People and you stereotype people, you really uh, make it a lot easier to commit violence against those people because we're, we don't exist, and, and if and when we do exist, we're caricatures.
2: That's brilliant. I have one last question. The name, sure. of, this, uh, the name of this podcast is Rage, right, which deals with righteous anger, and so my last question to, would be to you, what is it that you have and hold and encourage for yourself and others, righteous rage around?
1: I, you know, that's a really great question because we have criminalized anger for anyone who's not white. Um, We've criminalized anger, frankly, for anyone who's not a white man. So white women are with rage, but they internalize it and they hate when they see black and brown women actually externalize their rage because it makes them feel like, oh my God, I want that, but I'm not allowed to do that. Um, So I think just like with grief, you know, you and I were talking about that. You've got to, you've got to go through it to get through it. And you can't get to the other side until you allow yourself the full breath of emotions. And I think, how can you not be angry about the police killing black children and people? How can you not be angry about white people calling the cops on black people for sitting and standing and breathing? How can you not be angry for the cops and and random people killing you know, dark-skinned South Asians and, and Middle Eastern people because they think that they're terrorists. I don't know how you can't be angry about that. And for them to say that we're so angry because we're angry about the things you should be angry about, these white people get angry if their spin class instructor is five minutes late. But they're not angry about police brutality. You know? So I say... Uh, we have to get angry and we have to allow ourselves to be angry. And only through that will we get to a place I sincerely believe where we can actually be in action. And by the way, I think you can also hold various things at the same time. You can be angry and filled with joy. You're not one or the other. I'm not just angry. You know, I just had a really nice sandwich and I'm going to go for a walk. Like, but I'm also angry. Like it's okay To have anger as part of your personal narrative, you know? Tactical nuke incoming!
0: You are now listening to The Rage Podcast with your host, H. Soul. First part of our three-part series. Caught Cassidy with Sarah Rao dropping serious bombs. We want to thank her for coming on and being a guest. Want to thank everybody for tuning in, checking us out here on Rage. Make sure you follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Rage Podcast. So make sure you check us out. Follow us, see what we're up to. We got some good stuff on social media. In the meantime, in the between time, remember and never forget we must love and protect to one another. Stay calm and strong. H soul.